Hello. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, everyone. Uh, it gives us an immense pleasure to welcome you yet again in uh, another uh, inspirational and insightful conversation with the Abu Dhabi Institute tonight. Uh, and with us today, the conversation will be about epigenetics. And I'm sure all of you are asking, what is epigenetics? Um, so our talk today will be in the, in the content of epigenetics, the immortal case of our grandparents. As humans, we have evolved and survived because we are curious and critical thinkers. How do these traits shape our lives and science and lead us to understand the world around us? Epigenetics is a new area of science that is weaving our genetics and our environment um, that, shapes, uh, that shapes who we are. This talk will explore the impact of a trauma, war, on our bodies and what can we do about it. And it gives me an immense pleasure to welcome for us our, our amazing uh, speaker, uh, keynote speaker today in this talk, uh, um, another champion of women of science, uh, professor Rana Dajani, who is a professor of molecular biology and a strong advocate for science education for women. Uh, she has founded an initiative uh, that is called We Love Reading, which develops uh, change makers through reading aloud. This earned her the Jacobs Social Entrepreneurship Award in 2018. Uh, in 2017, she was selected by Radcliffe Institute uh, for Advanced Study as a fellow of Radcliffe Institute uh, at Harvard University. Her awards include uh, the UN Science, Technology and Innovation Award of 2019, the UNHCR Nansen Refugee Award of 2020, and the Schwab Social Entrepreneur uh, Award of 2021. Uh, uh, Dr. Rana Dajani, we're um, extremely excited to hear about you and the conversation. The floor is all yours. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you very much for inviting me uh, to, to be with you tonight. And I just want to um, share that I'm here to learn as much as everyone else. So please uh, have a notepad or your iPhone and write down your thoughts, your questions, your comments, and most importantly, your critiques, because that's how we learn from each other when we uh, advise each other and give constructive criticism. Uh, and so that we can have a, a, a very enjoyable and uh, a steep learning uh, curve uh, after the lecture by inter interacting with you and your questions. So I'm going to start by sharing my screen. There we go. All right. So uh, usually when I give a talk, uh, I always like to um, imagine that in the past, there were two groups of people. There were a group of people who sat around the fire and told stories. And there was another group who looked at those who were telling stories and frowned upon them uh, accusing them of wasting their time. But you can imagine which one of those two groups actually survived. It was the storytellers. And so in the spirit of evolution and storytelling, I'm going to share with you the story of epigenetics and how it unfolded in my scientific career and with the people that I work with around me in my community and in the region. 
But first, I'd like to introduce myself in slightly a different way, a, bit, a little bit more uh, not traditional. So I like to say that I play five roles in my life. And usually in English, when you talk about a role, you talk about wearing a hat. But I don't wear a hat. I wear a scarf. So I'm going to talk about my five scarves. The first scarf that I, my role is that I'm a mother. And I think that's the most important role I can play in, in my life because nobody else can be a parent better than I am for my children. And we're bringing up the next generation of children. So that's the first role that I'm very proud of. My second role is that I'm a teacher, an educator. I was a school teacher for 10 years, and now I'm a university professor teaching. And I think that's the second most important role any human being can offer humanity because children, if they're not at home with the parents, they're at school with a, with a teacher. My third role is I'm a molecular biologist. I'm a scientist. Uh, I work in two fields. I work in epigenetics, which I will talk about today. And I also work on ethnic populations. We're the world experts in Circassians and Chechens. Of course, my work in genetics led me uh, to work on stem cells. And because I realized there were no guidelines for uh, using stem cells in research and therapy, I spearheaded an effort to create a law to uh, guide how to do research with stem cells and therapy with stem cells that was the first in the region in Jordan. And lastly, fourth, I'm a social entrepreneur. I founded We Love Reading, which is about changing mindsets through reading to create change makers, which I'll also briefly touch upon in my talk. And my fifth scarf, I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm going to invite you to read my book, The Five Scarves, which I wrote when I was at Harvard and was reviewed in Nature. Um, the book is also not just in English, it's also in Arabic, uh, so that we can reach out to a wider community, uh, especially in the region where we come from. So with that introduction, I'm going to start by telling my story. So we all know that the Syrian crisis uh, happened in 2011, and there was a flood of, um, of, of uh, Syrians who left their country for fear of their lives and fled to neighboring countries. One of them was Jordan, where I live. And of course, I'm half Palestinian myself and half Syrian. So the, the long history of, of refugee is not uh, very far from my history. Uh, and Jordan has always been a haven for different types of refugees, whether Palestinians in 1948, uh, uh, and then uh, Iraqis, and then Yemenis, and now Syrian, and, and Somalis, and many, many other others. And, and the, the hallmark of a scientist, I want to say, and a social entrepreneur, and even a human being, is seeing what everybody sees, but to think what no one has thought, right? Thinking outside the lines, uh, being curious, being critical. And so as a scientist looking around me and observing that the majority of these children, uh, of the refugees are actually children living around me or in the refugee camps like Zaatari or Azraq. And if we look at the numbers of how many people are forcibly displaced, there's 68.5 million, like one person displaced every two seconds right? And 52% of them are under the age of 18. And the majority come from Syria, Afghanistan, and South Sudan. Not just that, the Syrian refugee crisis is one of the biggest uh, in the last century and this century, unfortunately. And if we look at the um, impact of uh, displacement, I mean, especially in particular when we focus on health, uh, psychosocial health and mental health is one of the most important aspects, which is not given enough attention. We know that 45% of children have PTSD uh, and 20% have been clinically diagnosed with de depression and many, many more statistics. And so when we look at programs offered by international NGOs and UN agencies and governments, we know that they focus usually on food, shelter, and basic health. But we know today that we need to focus on other sectors, mainly uh, mental health, freedom to work, employment support, 
and having a dignity and, and, and a better life. So from this perspective, we as scientists wanted to explore uh, what interventions are effective that can really reduce violence and stress and promote health and well-being. And, and if, if we are going to ask that question, how do we get the robust evidence for program evaluation to figure out which one of those interventions really works? So we want to know what works for whom. And so one of the programs that was being uh, given out by Mercy Corps, which is an international organization, is called No Lost Generation. This is a program that has been implemented for almost 400,000 war-affected youth. It's a psychosocial intervention of eight weeks uh, that was being deployed in Jordan for Syrian refugees in urban settings and Jordan hosts. It's a program that gives uh, focuses on the heart, the brain, uh, and it also tries to build psychosocial through uh, a series of projects, so either sports or learning carpentry or uh, haircutting uh, or weaving or computers. So what we wanted to do is to evaluate these children who are engaged in this intervention. Now, there are many ways to do an evaluation. And this was done by a group of scientists led by uh, our team in Jordan with other universities like Yale, Queen Mary University, London, uh, and uh, Ontario University in Canada, as well as Harvard. Now, the first thing we do when we want to evaluate an intervention, typically, is to do self-reporting. So we have an interviewer who sits with the child and asks them questions that uh, assess mental health, stress, anxiety, well-being, and even resilience. This was a new measure that we introduced because we wanted these children to see not just how trauma and war was affecting them, but also how they were dealing with it and coping in a positive way. And we were able to publish our work, and we were able to show that not every measure that the intervention claimed that it achieved actually achieved. So yes, we saw that it reduced stress and anxiety, but it did not improve resilience. And that's why they actually used our data and research and went back to the drawing board to change how the program is um, designed to ensure that they are impacting resilience. And one quick lesson here is that because the intervention was designed by the West, uh, when they designed the resilience uh, elements, they were focusing on the individual, building resilience within an individual. However, in our communities, the Arab communities, resilience is built through family and community. So they went back and included more a family component and a community component so that we can impact resilience as well. Our work was not just published, but highlighted in a specific edition uh, issue in, in science. But you know what? Self-reporting is not enough. Because some, we may not say, you know, we may feel something, but really our body says something else. Our bodies don't lie. So as a molecular biologist and one who is an expert in biomarkers, I wanted to go deeper and look at the biomarkers inside the body of the human being to see the impact of trauma on physiology. And so we chose, among other biomarkers, the one I want to highlight today is cortisol. We know cortisol is a stress biomarker. It is secreted uh, uh, into not just your blood, but also deposited in your hair. And it goes up when you're stressed and then goes down gradually as the stress uh, goes away or you cope with it. So we wanted to do that. And we know that um, since uh, cortisol is deposited in the hair, we could take a strand of hair of 100 strands and cut it and then measure as your hair grows a centimeter a month and you have a record of how stressed you were as long as your hair is. And so we went to the kids and gave them a free haircut and were able to take a strands of hair to measure cortisol. Of course, this was all done with 
in uh, working with the local community, the children and the parents. So I went to them and I said, I'm half Syrian myself. And we want to inter really, uh, um, we want to assess this intervention. Really, does it work or not? So I wanted to give them ownership and dignity. So not to be subjects of a research, but actually to lead the research and how we're doing it and how we're collecting the data. And I asked and I told them, science tells us that you can collect cortisol from the hair and measure the stress. And so they really, they came up with a solution of hair cutting. And what we found is that cortisol indeed was reduced because of the intervention and we were able to publish our work. And we were very happy to show this. But then we wanted to go further. We wanted to look, and this is the team that actually worked on the cortisol as well as the self-reporting of the different um, uh, uh, surveys that we had conducted. But we wanted to look further because we know that the human body is not, not just impacted by the environment, but also how we behave uh, is related to our genetics, right? Well, which we inherit from our parents. So we wanted to look at particular genes uh, to try to understand how, as humans, we cope with trauma and stress and war. So we wanted to look at one gene, which is the MAOA gene. Now, this gene is responsible for an enzyme that breaks down neurotransmitter, which is called dopamine. So if we have a lot of this enzyme, dopamine is breaking down. If we don't, then we don't break down uh, dopamine. So MAOA is also X-linked, so it's only expressed in males. So we took the male children that we were working with, and we looked at um, how much MAOA these children have. Some of them have high MAOA, and some of them have low. And we wanted to see how much the amount of this enzyme uh, was related to how much they experienced trauma and how much resilience they built. So the, I'll share with you the findings. So what we found is that the, in males, of course, that there was an association between the, um, the MAOA that the children have and perceived stress. So the, the less MAOA they have, the less stress they felt. So this is the connection between your genetics and the environment around you. And we also made a connection with resilience. And we found that the children who had higher resilience had lower MAOA and lower perception of stress. So we've showed a three-dimensional relationship between behavior, genetics, and the environment around them. And we published our results in, in uh, PLUS One. Uh, now, this led us to uh, um, uh, uh, make an association between what we discovered in these children, which is the ORCID hypothesis. Now, this ORCID hypothesis has been put forward before by other scientists, and we, able, we were able to relate our results with this hypothesis. So this hypothesis says that children are sensitive. So some of them are ORCIDs, so they're very sensitive to the environment around them because of their genetic makeup. Um, and so uh, they are very sensitive. If you give them, um, put them through a stressful situation, they really, really respond in a, in a very bad way. And if you give them in a positive environment, they respond in a positive way. Then you have the dandelions on the other end of the spectrum. So these are children who wherever you put them, they can bounce back. So they're not very sensitive. So they can, uh, you know, they persevere in stress and they also uh, do very well in a good environment. And then we have the majority of children who lie in the middle, who we call them tulips, who are not delicate like orchids and are not as strong as dandelions. And this is very important to understand as we try to understand how children cope with trauma, how they respond to trauma, and how we can then later help them by creating interventions for them to cope. And this is the team who worked with us on the MAOA uh, gene. Now, and a movie was actually done 
uh, for the general public, a documentary, which is called Terror and Hope. And I urge you to go check it out online, uh, which we can share these links later. But this is a movie to show the science of resilience, how science is so important under humanitarian conditions. So we can develop better programming uh, to help children uh, who go uh, through trauma so that they can cope better. Now, I'm going to come now to a third component. We talked about self-reporting. We, we talked about physiology. We talked about genetics. Now, we're going to look now at the, another, the interplay of the genetics with the environment around us. Because in the past, you know, we used to study genetics alone. We used to study, study the environment alone. Now, the new thing is to study how both of them interact to impact the actual result. The result is what we call the phenotype of how a person behaves and, and how we see, perceive that person. Now, the interaction between these two is what we call epigenetics. So epigenetics, if we want to explain it at the molecular level, at the cellular level, it's, it's, it's actually, it's like the cell actually listens to what's happening around it. It doesn't actually listen. It senses what's going on around us because it has receptors around it that can bind to signals around it. And then when the signal binds to the receptor, that message is, or that signal is transferred um, into the cell and impacts how the cell behaves, whether uh, in an immediate way or on the long term by affecting the genes. So that's the interaction between the environment and the genetics, which we call epigenetics. So what does that mean? Well, let's, this is a more like dive in into the cell, into the DNA in the nucleus of the cell. So this is a chromosome, as you can see here. The chromosome is made of DNA wrapped around proteins, which we call histones. Now, if the DNA is wrapped tightly around the histones, that piece of DNA is not expressed. It's not active. If it's loosely wrapped, then it's active. It's expressed and can have a function. Now, because of the interaction with the environment, uh, whether it's stress or having fun or something you eat or whatever, uh, the, the, the proteins and the DNA uh, can be wo woven tighter or less tight. And we call this, one of those ways of doing that is by adding certain groups to the DNA, like methylation, a methyl group. These methyl groups uh, can be added because of this interaction with the environment. So that's the epigenetics, meaning we, the impact of the environment does not change the sequence of the DNA. The DNA is the same. It doesn't change. It just changes which genes are active, meaning turned on, and which genes are not active, turned off, by winding it tighter or less tight with the proteins uh, in the chromosome through these methylation uh, uh, groups. So if we go to experiments in mice, because that's where we discovered epigenetics. So I'll give you an example. If you take a mouse who had a, a pup, a little baby mouse, and if we have one parent that actually takes care of it, it's uh, a pup, the, one, the mouse on the right of the screen, uh, versus the mouse on the left who does not take care of its pup because it's anxious and stressed, this pup, when it grows up, if it has been taken care of, it grows up to be a relaxed pup and takes care of its own children. If it has not been taken care of, uh, as the mother should, because it's stressed, the pup grows up to be stressed and anxious like its mother. Now, the DNA of all these pups and all these mice is identical. So the difference is from the environment, an environment where the mother is caring versus an environment where the mother is not caring. Because of this 
in, different in environment. There's an impact on which genes are turned on and off that results in the mouse being anxious or not anxious. And when we say anxious, we're talking about cortisol, the stress response that I mentioned earlier in this year in refugees. So in the mouse, the cortisol is, is produced when the mouse is stressed. And as it goes around in the blood, in a usual case, it should be bound by the receptor that takes it into the cell and reduces the amount of cortisol in the blood. Now, if that gene for that receptor is turned off, then the receptor cannot bind the cortisol and bring it in. And so the cortisol level will always remain high. But if the gene is turned on, then the receptor will be there, will bind to the cortisol and bring it in and reduce it. So for the pup whose mom never took care of it, uh, that gene is turned off. And so the cortisol is always high because there's no receptor to bring it in. While the pup where the mother was taking care of it, the cortisol uh, receptor was there. The gene was turned on. The receptor was there. It bound the hormone, brought it in, and reduced the cortisol, and the pup was relaxed. Now, we know that this is because of the impact of the environment, because we go to the gene in this mouse, and we see that it has the methylation groups, and it's turned off where the pup was not taken care of. And we see it turned on in the pup that was taken care of. And we know that we can reverse this, actually. But this anxious behavior is important. There's an advantage to it. Because if the mother's stressed, that means there was something going wrong around her in the environment. And so when the pup grows up, it's capable to deal with that stress. And if the mother's relaxed, then the pup grows up to be relaxed. And it doesn't have to be turned on and anxious because the environment's okay. And we know that we can reverse this. So if we take um, a drug, that adds methyl groups, we can take uh, a, a mouse that is not anxious and make it anxious, or we can do the opposite. If it's anxious, by removing the methyl groups to a drug, we can uh, reverse it to become not anxious anymore. So these epigenetic patterns can be reversed, well, in mice and drugs, but we believe in, in uh, we can do it through behavior interventions in humans because we can't give drugs to humans yet. This, these are all experiments in mice. Now, let's go to humans because, I mean, we learn from mice as models, but we want to understand what's happening with us as humans so we can help ourselves and help humanity. Because as we, in, in the way I started my lecture, is that we want to use science uh, to help um, humans, especially under humanitarian conditions. So we know that throughout the lifetime of a human being, starting from a zygote, as you can see, uh, in a mother who's pregnant, and then the child is born and the child grows up. We have the same genetic makeup. We have the same genome in this human being as it grows. What changes is the epigenome, meaning those methyl groups that are added onto the genome that turns on and off genes like selector switches. So that's what changes as we grow older because of the environmental influences. So for example, what are those influences? When a baby is in, uh, the, the mother is exposed when she's pregnant. So stress, alcohol, drugs, nutrition, what she eats, her lifestyle, she smokes or she plays exercise and the environment around her, pollution. And then the baby inside her in utero is also affected, right? Um, the DNA is affected because some genes are turned on and off. And then as that baby is born, um, as it develops, you know, it, it may have diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, stroke and obesity, which are manifestations of, those, um, of what happened in the environment impacting the DNA and producing this epigenetic uh, mark. So if we look at the disease risk over a lifespan, right, whether we're looking early life, as you can see in the bottom, or midlife or later life, what are those factors that impact it? First, we have your race and ethnicity can impact that. 
because it's impacting the social economic factors. Uh, you know, how much money I have? Am I educated? Um, what my lifestyle? Do I have parents in a, a community and a parent? How much, you know, the, the, the you know, socio, socioeconomic uh, status that I live in. So what impacts that? Your race and ethnicity, as we know, uh, social determinants of health, um, and your epigenetics. Okay, so all these are factors from the environment that will impact uh, disease risks over a lifespan. And we also know now, not just about disease risk, but also psychologically in building resilience, that epigenetics plays a role. This was a recent review in Lancet talking about the interplay of psychology, the environment, and the genetics for uh, boosting and fostering resilience, especially under humanitarian conditions. So if we look at um, the, there, well, some, there's something that we call the epigenetic clock. Now, the epigenetic clock is the epigenome I talked about that changes as we grow older. Now, sometimes we can accelerate it and sometimes we can de-accelerate it. One way to, uh, to accelerate it is disease, um, you know, a neurodegeneration, neurodegeneration that happens in our brain, obesity, stress from war and trauma, infection, uh, and our gender, male or female. Some ways to de-accelerate the epigenetic clock of aging is by having a good quality of life, you know, eating well, um, having good interventions, having good interventions, having good interventions that could help alleviate that uh, and de-accelerate that clock. One of those clocks that we have been working with recently was developed by Michael Kober uh, at the uh, University of British Columbia in Vancouver. So he has developed a particular kind of epigenetic clock um, that uh, measures aging in children. Uh, so it's called the pediatric buccal epithelial clock because we don't have to take blood to measure it. We can just take a little swab from the cheek and look at those cells and measure the epigenetic clock of these children. Now, we know that this epigenetic clock can be accelerated or deaccelerated by intrinsic factors, you know, the genetics of this child, its gender, you know, and its genetics, by physical and social environment, what they eat, what the mother ate, um, you know, if there's, uh, the mother smoked, uh, the lifestyle. And then by interventions, like we can introduce interventions to reduce the stress uh, um, uh, and de-accelerate that uh, aging clock. And this way we can impact health and developmental outcomes in the child. So what we wanted to do with um, uh, epigenetics is to look at a particular intervention, which is the We Love Reading intervention, which I have developed uh, uh, since 2006. So just to give you a brief background of what is We Love Reading. We Love Reading is a program about changing mindsets through reading to create change makers. And, the, and how do we do that is that we train adults on how to read aloud as an art in the native language to the children in their local neighborhood. Uh, and the impact is not only on the children, but on the adults and on the wider community. So it impacts early, uh, early ch uh, childhood. It impacts uh, mental health and reduces stress and boosts resilience. It also, for the adults, um, um, creates leaders and social entrepreneurs who are reading aloud to the children and, in general, um, addresses a number of SDGs because of the holistic approach that it takes and gives them uh, to the community a mindset of ICANN. And with COVID, we have actually moved the training online so we can reach more and more people. And because of that, Wheel of Reading has now spread to 63 countries around the world and counting. Now, we did research first before we wanted to look at epigenetics of the Wheel of Reading intervention. We wanted to look at the behavior. Does Wheel of Reading first impact behavior? 
system, just as we did with the other intervention. So with Brown University, we looked at executive functions like working memory, inhibitory control, and emotional regulation. All these functions, um, uh, we have, were able to show that through We Love Reading, after reading aloud for six months, that all these, the children improved in all these three, and especially those who come from lower socioeconomic status. Uh, we also showed that the We Love Reading program um, improved empathy, actually double. And this was work done with the University of Chicago. Uh, and now we are actually working with NYU Abu Dhabi, Professor Antia von Schondolitz, uh, who is now studying the impact of the We Love Reading on the mother and the child interaction at home. And the hypothesis is that both will improve because of the shared reading aloud experience. So we're really excited working with Professor Antia. And of course, the New York Times ran a whole uh, article about how We Love Reading helps refugee children heal trauma. And we just won the Schwab Award as our latest uh, award. And with the Big Heart Foundation, which is also based in Abu Dhabi, uh, a documentary was made about one of our We Love Reading ambassadors in the Zaatari camp. And I ask you to stay tuned to watch the movie, which will be coming out later in March. Um, and we also started producing children's books, uh, not, not just about reading for fun, but had subtle themes like the environment, saving energy, not littering, uh, refugees, social cohesion, uh, and gender, dis respecting uh, people with special needs, and so on. And actually, we developed the children's books with the students from NYU Abu Dhabi, I'm very proud to say. Uh, we work, we've been working with them for the last two years, and we produced a book in English and in Arabic, which is called Where is Our Home? And actually, in the 10-year celebration last year of NYU Abu Dhabi with their vice chancellor, uh, we had a launching of the book, which we're very proud, and it's actually available at the NYU Abu Dhabi campus. So I urge you to also seek it out. And this is an invitation to students from the university uh, to, uh, to seek, you know, to create projects, uh, whether it's scientists like Professor Antia or students, where uh, they embark on research and projects that not just improve academia and research and uh, boost students' experience, but also serves the wider community around them. So we're really happy working with them and with local funders like the Big Heart Foundation, who are funding local initiatives in the Arab region. So in our research with uh, Professor Michael Kolber and uh, Professor Antia, what we want to do is we want to take the Wheel of Reading as an intervention to see if we can actually um, uh, reverse the uh, bio, the epigenetic clock in children. So we know that the epigenetic clock in children can be uh, accelerated. The aging can be accelerated because of socio-emotional development behavior or because of uh, longitudinal impacts, sleeper effects, or because of trauma or stress that they have been um, uh, gone through. And so the, the hypothesis is that the wheel of reading intervention will reduce uh, and reverse uh, and deaccelerate the epigenetic clock and help these children early on. And so what we're going to do uh, is we're going to do something called a randomized control trial, which is state-of-the-art in science research. So we, we recruit mothers and children, and then uh, randomly we assign them either a group that takes the intervention, the We Love Reading program, um, and a group that does not. And we measure them at three time points, before the intervention starts, three months after, and then a year after, because we want to look at the longitudinal impact. Does this, the impact of their intervention remains with the child as they grow older? And in each stage, in the three time points, we're going to assess their behavior, and we're going to look at their epigenetic genome to look at that buccal uh, pediatric epigenetic clock and see where it is. Is it accelerated? Is it deaccelerated? And, and as in a refugee community.
And so that's, stay tuned, and that will be coming. We're actually now starting to collect the data, and we're very, very excited. Now, I will end with my last part, which is, you know, working with Syrian refugees and working, uh, looking at epigenetics and coming, being half Syrian myself uh, and half Palestinian, going through a history of trauma and stress. The question that came to mind is, okay, if I go through this stress, will that stress be transferred across generations? So we already know from mammals that 1% of genes actually um, escape reprogramming. So most of the genes, as we know in mice, uh, after the child uh, grows up and now it's ready to have a, you know, a, a gamete, an egg or a sperm is produced, all the epigenetic markers that were accumulated throughout the lifetime of that person or that mouse are erased and you start fresh every time, right? Otherwise, we'll be accumulating all the epigenomes of past ancestry. But we know that 1% of those genes actually escape the erasure and stay with the next generation, right? We know this in mice. Uh, no, we're not sure about that in humans. And that's the, like, the billion-dollar question. Do, in humans, do you transfer that epigenetic signature or not, right? And so that's what we wanted to ask. And like I said, we already know it happens in mammals like mice, but we don't really know if it happens in humans. So the, what we want to ask, if a mother... Uh, smokes, for example, or it is uh, exposed to trauma of war or has a particular lifestyle or does we love reading? How does that, we know it impacts her. And that's the question we're trying to ask in the research that I just shared with you with NYU Abu Dhabi and uh, uh, British uh, Columbia, Vancouver. But we want to know if that mother has that signature, that epigenetic signature, does she give it to her child, her fetus? And does that child, especially if it's a female uh, and has an ova, is that epigenetic signature transferred to the grandchild, to the third generation or not? So as you can see here, and this is in a color, uh, colored diagram. So if the mother, for example, smokes or has trauma from a war, um, does that epigenetic trauma impact her daughter who's in red when she grows up or her granddaughter who's in blue when she grows up? So because I'm Syrian, I was able to find three generations of women who had experienced trauma. Uh, there's a city in Hama, uh, called Hama in Syria, that was exposed to a trauma in 1980. So those grandparents, you can see them here in white, were exposed to a, a massacre. So we took those grandmothers, and then we followed their daughters and their granddaughters. So that was one group. And then we took another group where the, not the, the grandmother was not exposed to trauma, but the daughter was exposed to trauma in 2011 because of the Syrian crisis. And so we followed her, her, her mother and her daughter. And then we had a third group where there was no trauma at all in all three generations. And we just finished collecting the data. We are analyzing the DNA now. So again, stay tuned. This is going to be coming, hopefully, uh, in the summer uh, to answer that question. Is the epigenetic signature of trauma transferred across generations? And to me, the more important question, uh, what, what is that epigenetic signature? Is it we're not just asking the negative impact because most of the science and research looks at negative impact of trauma. We want to ask a positive. We want to be more positive. Is there a positive signature? How do we deal with trauma? How do we foster resilience? How do we cope in a positive way? Uh, and, um, and because we, we've evolved, we've been, you know, through evolution, throughout evolution, humans have been exposed to trauma, yet we have survived. So we want to ask that flip question. And we're not going to shy away from asking that question because we want to learn from it, how we survive and how we cope so we can develop and design better interventions that, that come from the people who worked through the trauma to better serve uh, and give dignity and, and ownership and agency to those people who went through this, um, to these, through these terrible experiences. Hence, the title of my talk, 
the immortal kiss of our grandparents, which was actually coined by my daughter, who I, I engaged my children in all my research and she learned all about epigenetics. She said, oh, mama, so that's the immortal kiss of our grandparents. And of course, this is the team who's been working on the transgenerational trauma that I just talked about, uh, University of Florida, um, uh, Connie Mulligan, uh, Mulligan, and uh, Catherine Panterbeck from uh, Yale University as well. So uh, uh, I will end here by saying, I think every human being is unique. Unique because their DNA is unique. Nobody's DNA is like anyone else. Even identical twins, by the way, uh, are a little bit different because of the epigenetics. Their environment is slightly different. So you are unique. And because you are unique, I urge every person to look around them and to, as I said, to see what everybody sees, but to think what no one has thought, the hallmark of being human and to identify a challenge around them and come up with a solution to solve that problem. Just like I did with We Love Reading and how I do my science. And if anybody tells you, who do you think you are? You're just one person. We'll tell them, well, what is the ocean? It's just millions of drops. And, you know, it's, uh, it takes, uh, I, like, I call this the butterfly effect. When a butterfly flutters its wings in one part of the world, it moves the wind a centimeter. There's a hurricane or change in time and space beyond what we can imagine. And that's actually a hadith, a, a saying by Prophet Muhammad, not to belittle any good deed. Every little deed counts. And that every one of us is a guardian and we have a responsibility to make a difference around us for humanity and for the world around us. Thank you very much. I will stop here. Uh, and I look, I'm excited and looking forward to your questions, your comments, and your critiques. Professor Dejani, it has been an absolute pleasure to look into science from a different perspective, from an enlightening and I would say an impactful perspective that would touch people like on a faster rhythm than what we are used to, right? Developing a drug takes uh, sometimes ages and years. But when you're putting it in a different perspective uh, of how we develop solutions for people through understanding their own genetics, it's a different story. So we have excited audience and they're ready here to meet you through their questions. So I'm going to introduce the questions plus the person who is asking the question. So we have... Uh, Shani is asking, she loves your presentation, she loves the interaction that you're building up, the enthusiasm and happiness and your energy transcends it, so she wonders if she can have access to your material on any kind of form and any kind of media, so I would leave that to you if you have a website or something, maybe we can put it later on as part of this. Um, and then the second discussion is we're having from SL, so he's saying... Uh, good evening, uh, Professor Dijani. When discussing the difference in the pups' uh, upbringing, you mentioned uh, the mother nurturing. Did you all uncover findings regarding the father of the pup as well and the nurturing, uh, you know, traits of the fathers or the males? That's a fantastic question. Thank you very much for bringing it up. Um, and now, in mice in mice in particular, because the question was about mice and their experiment was in mice, it's the, uh, it's the mother, the, the female pup that actually does the, the nurturing. This is how it is in, in, in mice world. <laughs> uh, now, however, in humans, we know that both the father and the mother 
can play a very important role in bringing up of the child. So actually, in our work with We Love Reading, we uh, are conducting a whole study about the fathers and their engagement with their children, measuring their um, uh, not just their behavior, their mental health, how they're doing with trauma and how they cope with their children. And we want to do the epigenetics, but we, we you know, there's only so much funding and we need to prioritize. So we start with the mothers. Uh, because they spend more time, uh, we know, in, in, in communities and in cultures that we are dealing with. However, it is on our list, and we are going to do the epigenetics of fathers, uh, and it's in the pipeline. So thank you for asking it. And both are important, uh, because as humans, we know that both play a role. And we already know uh, from biomarkers and physiology that we have the hormone oxytocin. It's expressed by both mothers and fathers that allows them to, um, to take care of their children. So yes, thank you very much for asking that. Great. So keep on reading these publications because it's coming up. So we have a question, uh, actually a remark from Fatma Al-Maisri. She says she wishes a human would be injected with methyl tags sometimes. Oh, really sorry. Uh, okay. Sundas Asad, she's saying, how did you decide on the Mao as a marker? Were you able to adjust to the differences between adults uh, and pediatric age group levels? Oh, yes, that's a great question. Thank you very much for bringing it up. You can actually read our paper. It's in PLUS One. Just Google my name, M-A-O-A, PLUS One. You can find it. And if not, you can just email me. I'll, I'll share it with you. Uh, actually, these are all children. We went from age 13 to 18. And yes, we adjusted. We, weren't look, we didn't look at the level of the enzyme, by the way. We only were looking at uh, the, we were correlating the children's perception of stress, their, their resilience levels, with the kind of uh, polymorphisms they had, because MAOA has two polymorphisms, either a, a short repeat, um, like just a few repeats, or many repeats. And that kind of reflects how much of the enzyme you have, right? So we weren't actually measuring the amount of the enzyme. We were just correlating um, the different polymorphisms with the behavior. Yeah. So another follow-up question, are you suggesting that these epigenetics can be reversed with the psychological intervention? This is also Sondos asking. Yes, that's the hypothesis. That, you know, just as the environment impacts your epigenome and therefore results in a particular type of behavior, that environment could be negative and therefore have a negative impact, or it could be a positive one. That's such an intervention, a love and care, uh, we love reading, having positive interventions yeah. that could also have that uh, reverse meaning changing the epigenome because it's not always about like negative means turning off a gene and positive means turning on a gene. No, uh, an impact could be turning on or off either way, right? So it depends on the gene. It depends on the environmental factor that's being, uh, that's affecting that particular gene. Which is very, I think, positive uh, thought when you know that you are in control actually over your own genetics. Um, Exactly. So SL is asking, uh, might deep ecology and eco-feminism factor into this, uh, into your methodological approach? I think because SL asked you about the male uh, selection. So he's asking, are you particularly just targeting uh, uh, females and not males with the, as subject matters of this, of this experiment? No. Both. But I said, <laughs> you only have a little bit of money, right? And yeah. to do a good research, you need a large number. The more numbers you have of a particular group, uh, the, the better the statistical power. And the more you can, uh, you can prove if the, your hypothesis works. 
So because you're, when you have multiple variables, that means you need like hundreds of thousands of people. But if you have less variables, then you can ha- deal with less numbers. And so because of the constriction, uh, con- limitations of funding, you, you cannot do everything. So that's why we started with the mothers because the mothers are the ones that are nurturing the child, breastfeeding in the first few months and in the first few years. This, and this is the way the community and the culture is in the Arab world, where, which are the refugees we are studying. Uh, but we are going to say the fathers, we've already started. If you go to our website, we actually just, uh, we have a whole father's report. We just finished uh, studying all the mental health and behavior of the fathers with their children uh, among Syrian refugees. And we are sub- writing up the paper to submit. And the epigenetics will be coming. Because even the epigenetics for the females, we're still analyzing the data now. So just stay tuned. And by the way, for that one who's asking, if you're really excited about this, I invite you to become a scientist and make this your field. Become that expert on fathers and males and teach us. We will learn from you and we'll work together. That's a call for you, SL. She is part of the student body and I'm sure she will be very excited about this. She's already asking about your presentation, feedback results and all of this information. We have um, a question from Ragad Yunus and she's asking, uh, where can we find the the results during the summer? Uh, There is a website that we can follow up with. So, yes, so we, um, well, if you, the fir- when we publish them, uh, they will be on, you know, any pub- PubMed. If you Google my name, they'll be there. So that's, that's the easiest way. Uh, we will publish the results that have to do with We Love Reading immediately on the We Love Reading website. Uh, that's mm-hmm. one. The intergenerational is not about We Love Reading, but you can find it on my own website, which is, uh, you go, you, uh, it's a Harvard Scholar website. And I think we can share all these links that you could put under the video. Yeah. Yes, when you that post it later. Yeah. Yeah. Izzy is asking, she has a question about, so DNA are all of the gene we have coded into our person, but uh, epigenetics is which ones are turned on or not. So just trying to clarify this point. Um, so we have a question How from Aisha Al-Rufuh. How can we distinguish uh, the trauma-related epigenetics uh, change from other environmental factors in different generations? That's a very important question. And that's the biggest and most difficult question. So, for example, in the intergenerational study we're doing that I told you we have the three cohorts, we're trying to control for every other factor so we can only focus on the trauma. So we're looking, making sure they all have this more or less the same nutrition, more or less the same socioeconomic status, more or less the same lifestyle. And we collect all this data so we can control for it when we do the statistical analysis. And, and only hopefully the trauma exposure is what is different from one group to another. So this is all about statistics, by the way. And this is another call to students to study statistics. We need statisticians because you cannot analyze such data with such uh, finesse without having strong statistics uh, to back you up. And we have a great statistician on board with us and on the team who is fantastic. So very good question. And yes, we are looking out for that. Okay. So we're having like, uh, you know, um, a group of people like are trooping here for making sure that you provide 
accessibility to this information on epigenetics and they are the first subscribers to any bootcamp that you are deciding to do on this. So Zena, Adel Mansour, I don't want you to think I'm ignoring your question, but it's all about information. How can they learn more about epigenetics? What is epigenetics? How can be how can they be scientists on this field? Uh, Kalsum as well, she asked something of similar information about how can they volunteer for intervention for the research work, all of this information maybe we could add uh, at the end of the video. Um, uh, so uh, Jalal Nasser is asking, uh, how far did the findings uh, at, uh, attracted policymakers and how did they receive them? Um, he's a chairman of Bahrain Statistical Society, just in case. Yes, because yes, the no, I know Jalal, thank you very much for being here. Uh, we're very excited. We work with Jalal as well and uh, we in, uh, work with him. He's a great, fantastic person and statistics. Absolutely. So yes, we the, ultimately we want to influence policymakers so that they can change how they develop programs, uh, how they deal with uh, uh, refugees or people from their own communities and, and, and societies. Uh, so ultimately what we do is other than publishing academic articles, <laughs> we also produce policy reports where we summarize our findings in a language that is more uh, accessible. Uh, to the general public and in the local language, so in Arabi, so that the policymakers can read them, utilize them, and implement them in their everyday work. And we publicize, you know, we give conferences, we give talks. Your talk here is going to be hopefully very influential because we can share it. And, and hopefully slowly we can um, turn uh, the needle. For example, uh, recently, because of the research we've done on We Love Reading, showing that this is a great intervention, it's backed by research, uh, the Ministry of Culture in Jordan is uh, hold, is launching a pan campaign, inshallah, in the beginning of Ramadan uh, uh, for spreading We Love Reading nationally. So to reach every village, every neighborhood, every street, uh, and have people take the online course and start reading aloud to the children in their neighborhood. Uh, so yes, we will. we are getting there. Uh, but it's all about having a voice. So I, again, this is another call to the students and faculty. Engage with your community. Uh, you know, uh, uh, science communication is so important. So let's learn how to translate the scientific jargon into something simple so that people can be inspired, can learn from it, and, um, and, and use science uh, and that data to, to guide policymaking going forward. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Dejani. Very insightful. Uh, so uh, Gregory pa uh, Pardlo, he's asking, this afternoon his daughter asked him, what is the use of art? And he uh, teaches literature and he was prepared to give her this kind of spir uh, spirited endorsement of art. Uh, but I, he thinks your work is a closer statement, testimonial to why art is important, to provide a scientific evidence of the importance of literature and art. Um, does your, for example, a program or initiative also uh, frame your findings? For example, would, would, you, would you include that scientific evidence that you have provided in the slides within you, your writing, uh, reading initiative, for example? Um, and he is asking, um, can you provide that as an argument for public policymaker to support childhood literacy um, um, and also chronically uh, undefended, uh, underfunded um, uh, programs and primary educational programs? Because we've seen today that there is a, a huge budget cuts and the first programs that has been uh, that are being subjected to this are art and music and all of these kind of programs. 
Absolutely. I commend you for that recommendation and for that insight. And that's what we do. So how come the Ministry of Culture in Jordan has adopted our program? Because of all that evidence that we have provided, the scientific evidence, not just a simple monitoring and evaluation, not just a simple taking of data. Because I went through the self-reporting that we mm-hmm. want the body doesn't lie. We want to go in. We want to see the biomarkers, the DNA, and the epigenetics. And so because of that body of evidence, we have been uh, taken seriously by governments for in, in our case, and we hope that others will. Uh, and hopefully UN agencies so that they can spread it further like UNICEF, like UNHCR, and so on. But, you know, everything takes time. Uh, change does not happen overnight. We know that. And if something happens overnight, believe me, it's not real. Uh, so uh, my policy is always patience, persistence, and ultimately uh, the message will, uh, will, uh, will spread and people will pick it up. I believe in that. That's how Wheel of Reading is spreading. It's a social movement. And you, every one of you, are the listeners, uh, have a role to play to take this message further, whether spreading the Wheel of Reading program, talking about using science uh, to develop better programming um, uh, for, for humanitarian, even for, for every day, for development, uh, how much we need. But it is the voice of the people that we need to guide what's happening. You have agency, every one of you. So lead, go ahead and demand what you deserve, but you have to take control, right? Nothing's going to happen unless we go and do it in our own. And I'm ready to help and support and advise in any way as, as well. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much, Professor. So the question here from Noor Al-Misiri is, what are your thoughts on telomere length erosion as an evidence of the trauma transish, uh, transmission? Of course, uh, that is already documented, that telomeres shorten uh, with exposure to stressful environments. Uh, and so that's one way of, of the body response to trauma. And epigenetics and epigenome is another way. So our body responds in different ways. It's very complicated. And as scientists, we try to parse it up, these it open and try to understand one mechanism, um, each one alone, and then hopefully have a more holistic um, uh, vis- uh, image of, or, of what's really happening. Uh, but yes, telomeres do shorten because of trauma exposure. We know that, yeah. So we have a, re- a recurrent question about uh, the replicability of this kind of studies on different countries and another crisis. Uh, some of the audience is asking, can we regenerate information about senior uh, citizens' resiliency against, you know, adapting to trauma? Um, and also we are having question regarding what are the main challenges that you have faced during re- the, your research and what are your top celebrated uh, results within this research? Uh, yeah, so replicating results uh, is something very important as scientists, right? We, the, the, what we're doing is very special and unique, especially in the refugee population, because every population is going to respond differently. We're humans, we're very different from each other. And that's why we try to get huge numbers so that we can really look at something beyond the noise of the data. Uh, now, our studies in refugees is pretty unique. And in an Arab ethnic group, which is also unique, most studies in epigenetics have been done in European um, heritage communities and not in communities of war and displacement and refugees. Hence, our results are unique. We hope people will take them and replicate them. We will be replicating in different ways as we do further studies, as everybody's encouraging us and inviting us to. Uh, So very good and important question. Uh, Now, the second point, what were the challenges we faced? Uh, yeah. so, uh, after, uh, so to mention a few, so I think a lot of research sometimes is done in silos and that is not, uh, correct. 
to do good research, uh, people have to work in teams. Uh, uh, teams, not just across disciplines. I'm a molecular biologist. I work with anthropologists. I work with mental health experts, um, but also across cultures. Uh, so we have experts, like I said, uh, from Yale. Uh, we have from Jordan. We have Syrians. So across cultures. And most importantly, that we need also with between uh, academia and international organizations and governments, right? So different types of, of organizations. So all these, this teamwork is very important. And in order to succeed in that, we need to learn to listen to each other, to communicate, to have a dialogue, to engage, uh, and to uh, perceive ourselves not as uh, to remove the power dynamics that no one is better than the other. We all need each other. So it's about having a human approach where we all work together. So that's one thing, how to navigate all that. The other challenge was most research is done, unfortunately, from a top-down approach, looking at the people that they study as subjects. And that, to me, that is totally wrong. And what we've done different in our research, and that's why we've succeeded, is that we engaged with the local community, with the children and their parents, and they become uh, co-creators and co-designers, not just of the research and how we do it and understanding the science and even advising us how to do <laughs> the experiments, uh, but also later in the design of the intervention, right? Uh, so they take agency because they know better the problem and they know better the solution. And if they create the solution, that solution will be sustainable because they made it. It wasn't somebody who brought it into them and implemented it and then left. Yeah. So, Professor Dejani, we always uh, we already went through thirty-eight questions. We have ten more to go. I think it, we will keep on being here, answering more questions. I would invite the rest of the amazing audience to reach out to you directly in your public platform. If you have time, I could like squeeze in one or two questions. If not, then we'll end it tonight. Thank you so much for giving us uh, light and positivity through science and giving us this kind of confidence that our genetics don't overrule us, but we could change uh, trauma, we could change and reverse other conditions that are going around us uh, that my, our biology might uh, have a dominance over that. Thank you so much. Any last uh, thoughts, remarks, or inspirational words before we leave you here tonight? Yeah, well, th I want to thank you, the, uh, the Institute, the students, the faculty, uh, for inviting me. I learned a lot, so thank you very much. And I invite everybody to trust in yourself, uh, be positive, be optimistic, and uh, believe that nothing is impossible. If you can dream it, then it's possible. And just go out there and do it, just one step at a time, but definitely you will succeed. And share with me your results, because I want to learn. Till the last minute, uh, we are always, always learning. And reach out to me, you have my email and my links. Thank you very, very much. Have a great night. Thank you, thank you, Professor Tijani. All pleasure. And looking forward to see you on another talk and another evening. Thank you so much. All blessed. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.